The following message is brought to you by Morgan Hill Bible Church. For all things MHBC, connect with us on social media and check us out online at mhbible.org. Good morning again. Welcome. So good to have you here this morning. If you have a Bible with you this morning, want to follow along with us, we're going to be in the book of John, John chapter 10. If you're new to Christianity, your church, that's the fourth book in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. We're going to be in chapter 10, the first 10 verses this morning. We are looking through over the next, well, six upcoming weeks, including this week, the seven of the main I am statements in the book of John, pulling from different passages where Jesus talks about himself. Today, we're going to be in John chapter 10. And as a reminder, we're not just looking at who Jesus is, but then how our lives are to be different in light of who Jesus is. Who Jesus is changes who we are as followers of him. Today, we're looking at the second one of these that we're going to look at in John chapter 10. Well, um, for many years, my wife and I lived in the city of Chicago. And for over five years, we lived in a specific apartment building that was up on the second floor. It was a two-flat apartment in Chicago. And there was a period of, I think it was about six months during part of the time that we lived there, that my wife's younger brother moved in and lived with us. Now, this wasn't a horrible thing. I like Joey. He's really easy to get along with. He's great. So so it wasn't a bad thing, but it was a little different. You know, he was, I think, 19 years old. I just finished high school was working. Both of his parents kind of moved away from the area and he wanted to stay. So he he moved in with us. Um, then uh, after he had been with us for a few months, my wife and I, we went away on vacation, right? Left him in charge of the house. Your responsibility, just feed the cats and make sure nothing burns down, right? Like you can handle that. I trust you, a lot of responsibility. And so what, while we were gone, um, it was one of those apartments where when you walk out the front door of it, there was kind of your own locked door upstairs, but the front door, it automatically locks behind you. And he left to go do some stuff. And right as he walked outside and the door shut, he realized, I don't have my keys. And we're out of town, right? And so, so he goes, he does his stuff. He's like, well, hopefully the, da- the neighbors who live downstairs will be home when we get back. He gets back. It's the middle of the afternoon. He goes, he rings the doorbell. They're at work. Shocker. They're not at home. And he's like, I'm locked out of the apartment. And Michael and Kristen are not here. What am I going to do? Now, fortunately for him, he had this great idea. So my, his aunt and uncle lived about two blocks away. It was like a five-minute walk. So he went down. His two cousins, which are his same age, were there. And so they grab a, a big extension ladder, and you have these three teenage boys walking down the street with an extension ladder. They take it to the front of my apartment and actually have a picture from Google, um, just Google Street View of what the apartment is so you can picture this. So my apartment was the one in the middle there. And so they take it right in front of the steps. They put the ladder right up onto that little roof and climb in the window because that's where his bedroom was. And they knew that he remembered he had left it unlocked. Now, this is not a main, main street in Chicago, but if you notice the left, that's a school. This happened at three o'clock on a school day. Right? There's all these parents picking their kids up from the Catholic school next door. This, this, these three teenagers are putting a, a big ladder up, climbing up into the windows, and none of my neighbors called the cops. I'm like, who are you? And why are you my neighbors if you're just going to let three random teenagers that none of you know climb in? Right? So the, the irony sign of the story is, too, that Joey is now a locksmith for a profession. 
So I guess he's now letting other people in and changing the locks after they've locked themselves out, right? So, so but, but why do we, like that story's hilarious, why? Because if you see someone with a ladder climbing into windows or trying to break into windows, what's your initial sign? Something is wrong, right? Because what happens if you belong there? Where do you enter? You go through the door, Right? You have the keys, you open, you go through the door. Jesus picks up on this concept today of that idea when he calls himself in John chapter 10, the door. And we're going to look at what Jesus is meaning when he calls himself the door. Now, our passage this morning, we're going to start reading in verse 1, but it comes right on the heels of chapter 9. There's no break in the story at all. And in chapter 9, Jesus has healed a man who was born blind. And rather than celebrate the fact that Jesus has healed him, the Pharisees start debating over the authority and the right of Jesus to do this act. They even call his parents in and are like, was he actually born blind or has he been faking it all along? I'm like, the guy's got to be like, what advantage is there to me of faking being blind my whole life, right? Like, what is this, right? But the Pharisees, rather than worship God, celebrate what Jesus has done, are in this kind of contentious debate with Jesus, questioning his authority and his right to do these things. And it's right on top of that that Jesus enters into this. And so in in chapter 10, verse 1, when he says, truly, truly, I say to you, his disciples are probably present, but he's also specifically talking to the Pharisees here. Therefore, truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber or a brother-in-law, but either one, right? But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens, the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought all his own out, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. Verse 7, So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Today, I want us to look at three lessons that Jesus is teaching us in this passage. Three lessons. And the first is this, is that true believers hear and follow Jesus's voice. True believers hear and follow Jesus' voice. He's using imagery for them that would have been very common in this heavily agricultural world in which they lived, of a sheep, a shepherd, and sheep pens. These were everyday things that everyone would have been familiar with. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't own sheep. Maybe you do. I, I kind of made fun of people who live in San Martin in the first service, and then people came to me afterwards like, we own sheep. I'm like, oh, I feel embarrassed now, right? But they were good-natured about it. But they, they did tell me that what I said about sheep are true, and that sheep are not known for their intelligence in the animal kingdom. That sheep, by and large, are rather stupid creatures, which is why it's not surprising that one of the most common metaphors in the Bible to talk about people are sheep, right? Because we're not always that bright and we make some stupid decisions and stupid mistakes. But there's the sheep in this passage, but then there 
is a shepherd. And shepherds in their time and culture and context, they would have rightfully and quickly understood this, what Jesus is saying here, even though these religious leaders did not get the implications of it. But shepherds at that time had a personal and close care for their sheep. These, these were not sheep that they just watched for a season until they grew up and were slaughtered. But these were sheep in that time that they would have been used for their wool. And so a shepherd would have cared for the same flock of sheep and the same sheep for years, perhaps over a decade at a time. They would have had a close relationship. It would have been very, very similar to how we have pets nowadays. It said that they often would have had names for most, if not all, of the sheep that were in their care. And there's this very unique thing about sheep that even though they are very stupid creatures, they know their voice of their shepherd and will follow after them. And so Jesus kind of uses this common knowledge of how sheep and shepherds work when he talks about the sheep will hear the shepherd's voice and follow after him. See, shepherds back in the day did not drive their sheep from behind, like with a stick or with dogs, telling a sheep where to go. But what a shepherd would do is he would actually walk out where he wanted the sheep to go and would call out to them. And then the sheep hearing the shepherd's voice would hear the shepherd follow after the shepherd's leading and go where he led them. He led them in the front and the sheep would follow after him. And what Jesus is saying is those who are my sheep, those who are true believers will hear and then will follow my voice, just like how those sheep will hear and follow the voice of the shepherds. There's an irony in verse six, right? That Jesus is talking about those who hear my voice, follow me. The Pharisees didn't understand what he was saying. In other words, they're not hearing the voice of the shepherd, right? They're not getting it. Jesus' call, this idea of, of, a, of sheep responding to this voice reminds us that this is a very personal and intimate call. The shepherds had close relationship with their animals and Jesus has a close relationship with us and he calls and following his voice leads us first into salvation, but then following God's voice leads us into the life and the blessing that God has for us as we walk with him. It is so important for us as followers of Jesus to shape our lives around the voice of God versus the other voices that are in our worlds. That we shape our lives on hearing the voice of God and following after that versus all the other voices that are going on in our world. Now, our world was filled with voices that don't speak God's truth to us. A few examples of those voices. One is just the media in general. And I know some of you are like, yeah, CNN is full of lies. And I'm like, yeah, Fox News too. Right? I'm not talking about one side or the other. I'm saying, in general, the whole thing does not have your spiritual interest become like Jesus in mind. That is not why it exists. And if we mindlessly let those voices fill our ears for hours and hours a day, we are filling our minds and our lives with voices that are not the voice of God. They're not voices of wisdom and truth that would have us walk in the kind of life that Jesus wants for us but we consume so many hours of it a day. Another one that's new for us in the last you know, couple decades here is the voices that are filled with in social media. Right? How many hours a day, especially the younger you are, more likely the more time you spend on it, which social media is not a sinful or a bad thing, but if we're not careful, we are letting so many voices that are not the voice of God, that are not the voice of scripture, speak into our lives and shape how we think, how we view others, how we view ourselves. 
And social media is a huge voice that we let so much time into our lives. We need to be careful of what it's saying to us. Another voice that doesn't often or doesn't always speak God's truth to you is yourself. Is that sometimes if you only listen to yourself, guess what? You lie to yourself. And if you only listen to yourself and that's the source of wisdom and that's your greatest voice, you're not gonna live the life that God has for you. Because if you're like me, sometimes you lie. You're like, I'm no good. God doesn't love me. No one would ever care about me. You can just go on and on and on. Guess what? That's, that's not what God says about you. That's what you feel about you in the moment. And sometimes you're lying to yourself. And so if your voice that you're always listening to to guide your life alone is yourself, you're not gonna walk into the life that God has for you because not everything we think is always right. And so we are filled with all of these voices from inside and from outside that don't speak God's truth to us. So how do we as followers of Jesus, how do we as God's sheep that want to hear and follow his voice, how do we hear and discern God's voice in our world today? A few ways that I hope are helpful. None of these are groundbreaking if you've been around church, but I hope are helpful to you this morning. The first is is scripture, that God speaks to us through his word. One of the core values of our church is that it's God's truth we stand on and live by. How can we live by scripture if we don't know what scripture is saying to us? How can we follow the voice of God if the primary means he gave us to hear his voice were just opening up when we walk into church for an hour on Sunday mornings, but we neglect to open it and to hear from God's voice through scripture the rest of the week? So many Christians wander away. So many Christians struggle with sin. So many Christians struggle with self-doubt and so many different things simply because the voice of God revealed in scripture is not a part of their everyday life. And you would be amazed at what would happen if you started to level the voices in our world and started to compare it with the voice of scripture and let this have a role every single day in your life. You'll be amazed at the change over the long term that God can make in your life when you are in scripture, letting its truth speak to you. So we hear God through scripture. Another way that we hear God's voice today is we hear God's voice through prayer. We hear God's voice through prayer. Now, sometimes we don't think about this because our prayer lives for so many of us have become truncated to, okay, God, this is what I need. I need help with this at work. I need you to help me a kid with this. I need this. I need this person healed. Amen. And I'm on my way. Right? We give God our laundry list of items, our checklist. We say, God, here's my prayer. I'm done. Answer what I've asked for. Thank you. I'm on with everything else. Whereas prayer is a conversation with God. It's not a one-sided dictatorship. But so often that's how we treat it. God, this is what you need to do for me. But if prayer is a conversation, that means that when we talk, what should we then do is listen. It's to be still before God and to be open to those moments that when we ask for wisdom, that we're actually pausing to listen and to reflect on his leading and guiding us. And to make prayer more than just you speaking to God, but setting aside intentional times in your life to pray and to be open and to be listening to where God is leading and guiding you. Another way that we hear God's voice today is through the prompting of the Holy Spirit. 
through the prompting of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Now, some of you, depending on your theological background and upbringing, are getting really nervous right now. You're like, oh, what is he about to say, right? Because sometimes it can kind of be taken like, everything you think is the Holy Spirit revealing it to you. No, it's not, all right? Sometimes you just think crazy things and it has nothing to do with God. But we don't need to underestimate the fact that if you are a follower of Jesus, the Holy Spirit indwells within you. The Holy Spirit lives within you. Yet so often we don't think about how that can and impact everyday life. And I found in my life that, that what happens so often is like something will come to mind, someone's name. And I'd be like, oh, that's weird. I haven't thought of that person in like five years. Huh, interesting. And I move on with my day and the Holy Spirit's like, why do you think I brought them to mind? You need to pray for them. You need to call them. You need to send them a text. I brought them to mind for a reason. And I've noticed myself trying to grow in this area of life because I would be like, oh, that's weird that I thought of so-and-so. And what if it's not just weird? What if it's the Holy Spirit prompting you to serve them, to do something for them? I think if we start to, to think through the things that we think through, man, I wonder if God brought that to mind for me because he has something that he would like me to do. I wonder how our perspective on our thoughts would start to shift and start to change. There are no random things. The Spirit will prompt you. And as you start to listen and look for the Spirit's prompting in your life, you will begin to see it more and more. Another way that we hear God's voice today is through the voices of other believers. Through other believers. This is why not just having friends in general, which is always good, but why Christian friendships, having Christian community is so important in our walk with Jesus. Because we hear God's wisdom and God's voice to us through the lives and through the stories and through the wisdom of other believers imputed into our lives. That we are better together than we are walking through this life alone. That God uses other Christians to speak his truth and to speak wisdom into our lives. And so the question for us is in a world that is filled with so many voices, are we intentionally making space to hear and respond to God's voice in our lives? Are we intentionally making space to hear and respond to Jesus's voice? Because voices are coming at us from all over the place. And if we're not intentional, we won't hear the voice of God. We'll be filled with all of this other noise. Can I just challenge you this week to think of something you can do to cut back on all of that noise to listen to Jesus' voice? Maybe just to turn the TV off a little bit earlier at night and have a little quieter evening. Maybe have your phone not be the first thing you pick up, but to spend 30 minutes reading and praying and being quiet before God in the morning while you drink your coffee before you log on for the day. What what would it look like just to create, not like hours and hours, but in your day, just five, 10, 15 minute moments that you're gonna set aside and say, I wanna hear, I wanna listen, I wanna be with God. I wanna hear his voice rather than all of the voices of our world. See, true believers hear and follow Jesus' voice. The second lesson that Jesus is teaching us in this this passage of I am the gate is that salvation only comes through Jesus. Salvation only comes through Jesus. He twice refers to himself as the door. In verse seven, I am the door of the sheep. And then again in verse nine, where he says this, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. Now, Jesus is kind of taking this metaphor, which he's already been talking about of sheep and responding to the call. So now Jesus is the door or the gate on a sheep pen. 
Now, they would have, just as they understood this idea of a sheep and a shepherd, they would have easily understood this as well, of what a sheep pen looked like. In a rural area, we have a picture of what one would have looked like. In urban areas, they would have been a little different. But in a rural area, this is what it commonly would have looked like. They maybe would have put some briars or thorn bushes on top as well to keep out predators. But it would have been a place like this where the sheep could be inside. And then if there wasn't a gate that they had built, oftentimes a shepherd himself would lay down at night and sleep across the entrance there to the sheep pen. And so if any sheep were going to try and get out, he would wake up, be able to keep them in. And if any predator was going to try and get in, they would have to go over him and he would wake up and be able to protect the sheep. And Jesus, with them having this image, seeing it in mind, says, I am the gate. I am that gate to the sheep pen. He says then that that because he is that door, he says that in verse nine, that you will be saved, that salvation is found through Jesus. And to help describe what salvation looks like, he uses two phrases, that the sheep will go in and out and find pasture. What does he mean when he says the sheep will go in and out? Is Jesus just saying they make a delicious hamburger? He's not just saying that, although they do. Sorry, some of you just got really hungry. It's after 11 o'clock. You're like, oh, now, now I want lunch. What, what does he mean by in and out? This idea of coming and freely going in and out is a, a phrase that's used throughout the Bible of a life lived under God and a blessing of obedience to God. It finds itself all throughout Scripture. A couple examples of it in Deuteronomy chapter 28, talking about the blessings of following after the covenant that God had given them. It says this, blessed shall you be when you come in, and blessed shall you be when you go out. In Psalm 121, it says this, the Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. It's not this idea of leaving faith and coming back to the faith, but this freedom that's found and security that's found when Jesus is your Lord and Jesus is your guide, that there's freedom, there's movement, there's security where he has led you. And he has the same, the same metaphor or idea of security and rest in this next word picture. They will go in and out, and then it says they will what? They will find pasture. It's this picture amidst all of the dangers in the wilderness and all of the animals and all of the things that could have hurt the sheep that within the master's realm, they are safe and secure, that they find pasture, they find peace. This brings to mind for me as it may for you, Psalm 23 verse two, where it says, he makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. See, he's saying the way to safety, security, and salvation is through Jesus. Now, this isn't the only time that Jesus uses this idea of a gate or a door or a passageway to describe entrance into the kingdom of God. He also has used a similar metaphor in the gospel of Matthew. In Matthew chapter seven, Jesus says this, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. There he's using this metaphor of in a city, which all the cities would have been walled. There were large gates that would have been entrances to them. And in most of those, they had a large gate, which eight, 10 people could easily walk through together. But often right next to it would be a very small gate that just one person at a time could go in and out. And that's the word picture he's saying, meaning that there's one specific way, the narrow gates that is exclusive to following after Jesus, that he is the only way to God. Now, Jesus is clear in his teaching here, and the New Testament is clear that Jesus teaches this, that there is no other way to salvation, that it is only through Jesus that one can be saved. 
Peter put it so well and so clearly in the, God, in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter four, there, there was a, a lame man who had been healed and the, the leaders, the Pharisees were questioning on what authority, how this man was healed. And Peter responds this way, which I love. He says this in Acts chapter four, starting at verse 10. Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him, this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. That Jesus is the only way to God. Now, this is a hard message for people in general to hear because we live in a pluralistic and synchristic world today. That this idea that Jesus is the only way to God rubs a lot of people, maybe even some of you this morning, if you're new or visiting, it rubs you the wrong way. See, people won't often describe their religious beliefs as pluralistic. Most people don't use that word, but it's very, very common when you start to hear people describe what they think about faith or spirituality. You'll hear phrases like, you know, I'll believe what I want, you believe what you want, and it doesn't really matter. It all works out in the end. That's just pluralism, that whatever works for you is good. Another way to think of it is, is when people say, well, all religions basically teach the same thing, right? We end up at the same way. So it doesn't really matter what you believe, what religion you follow. It all ends up the same place. I've noticed that in today's pluralistic culture where we want to just make it all, no, no one has hard feelings. And so let's just say everyone believes the same things. We talk about religion today, like how we talk about traffic. Like, oh, you need to get somewhere up in San Jose. Well, you could take the 101. You could take 85. You could take shortcut and take 87. You could take Monterey. You could take shortcuts. It doesn't really matter which way you get because you're going to get there. Some ways might take a little bit longer. You might have to be reincarnated a few times. May have to do a little more to get to nirvana. It doesn't really matter. You'll get to the same place eventually. Christianity, Buddhism, Hinduism, Islam, it doesn't matter. It all teaches the same thing and ends up at the same way. Jesus says, no. You cannot be a Christian and believe that all roads lead to God. Because Jesus says that there's no other name under which you must be saved. That it is Jesus alone that leads to salvation. Now that road is not, the fact that Jesus leads salvation is not a matter of pride for us as Christians because it's not anything you've done, right? It's all of what Jesus has done for us. So there's no pride in our salvation. There's only humility because we're not deserving it. It's all what Jesus has done for us. All we've done is respond in faith to what he's done for us. But the Bible is clear and Jesus is clear that he is the only way to God. And if you've lived a pluralistic life thinking that you can add that some Christianity is fine or that's fine, I hope you see this morning that the invitation is open to you to place your faith in Jesus, that he is the only way to God and that his truth, this can't be true and other religions can't be true. They are mutually exclusive in what they teach, that Jesus says, I am the door. And for those of us who are Christians, that we need to be firm on this. We need to do this in a loving and gentle and kind way, but we need to be firm on this because our world and our friends and our coworkers will tell us differently and will disagree with us on this. And it's easy to want to fit in, to not to offend, to be like, oh, okay, sure, you do that if that's what works for you. 
No, you need to say that you can think that, but I'm convinced of what the Bible says that Jesus claims to be the door, that Jesus is the only way to salvation, that there's no other name under heaven. See, that's, that's the reality of living in a pluralistic world. We also, there's so much what it was called syncretism in our world. And syncretism is basically the combining of multiple beliefs into one. And you'll see this by people who often describe themselves, I'm not a Christian or not this, but I'm a spiritual person. But I'm spiritual. What they mean by that is I, I pull from Christianity. I pull from Buddhism. I pull in some new age stuff. I pull some stuff from over here. And I just kind of make my own little religion. We need to be aware of this because the Bible is clear that salvation comes from Jesus alone, never Jesus plus anything else. And if, you, if your salvation in your mind depends on you plus what you do, plus anything else, it's not Christianity. Jesus says Christianity is, I believe, in Jesus alone is the way to God. That Jesus is the only way to salvation. It's never Jesus plus anything else. It's only through faith in what he's done for us. So by saying he is the door, Jesus is proclaiming that salvation only comes through him. The third lesson that Jesus is teaching us here is he's, he's teaching us that Jesus is the one that gives us eternal and abundant life that Jesus comes and gives us eternal and abundant life. How do we change? How is our life different because of who Jesus is? Because he is the door. Well, he's given us eternal and abundant life. John 10.10 is a well-known passage that talks about the thief coming to steal and kill and destroy. But so often, and I myself am guilty of this, so often we pull that verse and we don't read it in context of where Jesus is using this because it's right in the middle of a large paragraph and a whole story. And most of the time when we read that passage, John 10, 10, who is this thief who comes to steal and kill and destroy? Most of us, myself included at times, would be like, oh, well, that's Satan, right? Because Satan comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Well, Satan does come to steal, kill, and destroy. He's not on God's mission. He's everything against God. But when we read it in the context, this is now the third time that the word thief has been used in just 10 verses in John 10, 10. In John 10, verse 1, Remember, it says, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. In verse 8, all who came before me, all the religious leaders who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen. Those who are truly God were not persuaded and listened to them. Verse 10, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I, on the other hand, came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Who is the thief in verse 10? It's the Pharisees. It's those who place legalistic, self-righteous burden of salvation on your own works, your own efforts, your own rule following. And what Jesus says is this, if you try and get to God through your own efforts, if you try and tell people you gotta do enough, you gotta be good enough, you gotta follow enough rules to get to God, that kills and destroys people. Because no one can bear that expectation. None of us are good enough. He's saying that kind of religiosity kills people and I have not come for that. I came that people would have true life and have it abundantly. See, Jesus comes to offer us abundant life versus this legalistic self-righteousness. So what is the abundant life 
that Jesus promises. Because it's easy, again, to read our own, what we want into there, abundant life. That means prosperity and blessing, right? So I'm just going to have a good, easy life and everything I want, I'll get. That's what abundant life means, right? I wish. That's not what the Bible teaches. I love what one pastor said that we could think here, instead of thinking of abundant prosperity in life, we could think of abundant purpose in life. That because we are now Jesus's and he has given us life, that everything in our lives now has a different purpose and nothing is seen the same way because of the purpose that we have because of what Jesus has done for us. See, if you're a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus, your life revolves around two things. Your goal is to become like Jesus and to make him known to the world. That you in your life strive to have Jesus reflected more in your life, that the gospel is seen, that you're becoming more Christ-like. And then as you live your life, that others see Jesus through you and are drawn closer to Jesus and become Christians through the way you live and represent in the words you speak to others. And this is our purpose in life. Meaning that when Jesus transforms us, no matter the circumstances that we're facing, we have the opportunity to live this abundant life, even in difficult situations. See, living the abundant life of abundant purpose, of honoring God and growing closer to him in every circumstance changes how we think about so much of life. It changes how we think about work, about parenting. It changes how we think about school. It changes how we think about treating our siblings. It changes how we treat hardship. And suffering, because even there is an opportunity to glorify God, to represent him, and to become more like Jesus. See, this abundant life we so often have neglected in Christianity because we've kind of sometimes grown up or thought that this idea of salvation is just something that means that we die, when we die, we go to heaven. Right? What is salvation? Oh, salvation is when you die, you go to heaven. Jesus did not come just to save you from hell. Notice I said just, that is part of why he came, right? He doesn't want to be eternally separated from you. Jesus not come just to save you from hell. He came to transform your life now. Eternal life, if you're a Christian, is not something you get when you die. It's something that started the day you were saved. Eternal and abundant life is to be experienced here on this earth now. It's not a future experience. It's a current reality that we'll experience in a new and a fresh way someday. But it should characterize our lives now. Jesus wants us to experience this abundant life of overflowing purpose in every situation in life now, not just in the future. What robs us of experiencing this abundant life? What robs us as Christians of of this abundant life that Jesus has for us? I think one of those is legalism. That's in the context, that's who the thief is, right? These are the Pharisees who have all these religious burdens and demands on people. And he's saying, no, 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 that that steals and kills and destroys people. That doesn't bring life and wholeness and healing. We need to make sure in our own lives that following after Jesus is not simply being better behaved or doing a certain set of things, but it's from our heart wanting to honor God and represent him to the world and become more like him. See, moralism devoid of Jesus is empty. Moralism, being a good person without Jesus is empty. It doesn't ultimately lead to anything. There are a lot of good, nice, moral people who are apart, who are not Christians, who don't have Jesus. But we need to make sure that we're not becoming legalistic and just trying to become more moral in our lives. 
Where this for me has been hard and where I've been learning to grow and need to continue to grow in this area in my own life is where this really hits the road for me is as a parent. As a parent, is my goal to help my kids be moral or to become like Jesus? Right? Because so much of our parenting is, is that our kids will be moral and well-behaved. And ultimately, when we get behind it, why do I want my two, almost three-year-old to be well-behaved? Because it makes me look good. Right? But my kid hasn't had a temper tantrum in like two hours. Right, It was on the way when we got to church this morning. It was the last tantrum she had. Right, And I'm like, would you just behave, behave, behave? And it's easier, even as the kids grow up, it gets harder and harder. Because yes, we want our kids to be good, but there are good kids who don't know Jesus. What's our goal as Christian parents is that they would know Jesus. Not just that they would be good, but they would truly know Jesus. We need to make sure our hearts and having our kids experience this abundant life is not just to look a certain way or act a certain way so often so it doesn't embarrass us as their parents, but to go after their heart and helping them love Jesus and experience the life that he has for them. We can be legalistic in our own parenting sometimes of our kids, just wanting them to look and behave a certain way, not have them love Jesus. Another thing that robs us of this abundant life is comparison. Comparison, right? It's known comparison is the thief of joy. Comparison robs us of this abundant life. And it's so easy and tempting in our world today with all the images and things around us. Comparison pulls our eyes off of God and onto others and onto ourselves. And when we live a life of comparison, ultimately it leads to either despair, envy, or pride. It either leads to pride, thinking I'm better than all of these other people. It leads to envy, thinking I want what they have or leads to despair, thinking I could never be like them. None of those are the abundant life that God has for us. And how do we get our, our eyes off of that? It's just as we sung right before we started, it's we turn our eyes towards Jesus, right? We, we stop looking at the things of this world. We stop looking at others and we turn our hearts, our eyes towards Jesus. And as we focus on him, this abundant purpose in life, this abundant life that God has will start to invade every single area of our life. See, I want you to think through Because sometimes as followers of Jesus, it doesn't feel like the abundant life that we would describe, right? If I were going to describe my abundant life, it's like, oh, it wouldn't look like this hardship. It wouldn't look like this difficulty. But if the abundant life that Jesus has for you is an abundant purpose in every situation, what are you going through that this thinking could transform how you view this, not as an obstacle or suffering or hardship, but as an opportunity to become like Jesus and to make him known to others. How can your challenge be seen in the abundant life? Because even that is an opportunity to glorify God and for others to see him through your life. Jesus didn't come just to save us one day. He came to give us abundant and eternal life. And if you're a follower of Jesus, you can experience it even right now. God, we thank you for the abundant life that is found in Jesus. We thank you that he has come, that we may have salvation, and that indeed he is the only way to be saved. God, I pray that we would experience this abundant purpose in life, and that it would transform our thinking, God, that we would represent you to our world, that we would hear your voice and respond and follow after you. We thank you that you have called us by name, that you are good, and that following after you brings hope healing, and joy, and peace, and an abundant life. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
Thanks for listening. Continue the conversation with us on social media. Never miss a message and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes.